You're listening to the Bible for Normal People, the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. Serious talk about the sacred book. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Everybody, welcome to our last podcast of season two. And this is a retrospective, which is a fancy way of saying looking back at good moments and good times and things that made an impact on us. Yeah. So this is our, I think this will come out before Christmas. So Merry Christmas to you. Merry Christmas. This is our Christmas present to you, a recap of season two. (laughs) Well, it's that time, folks. It's time for us to talk about microdosing. Microdose gummies deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. Microdosing can help you get into a relaxed, focused zone easier and stay there longer. It has benefits for workout recovery, sleep, anxiety relief, boosting creativity, and even pain relief. You know, Jared, I have a really good friend of mine who saw that I was taking microdose gummies and she said, can I try some? And so I, I gave her some of the sativa strand and she said it has made such a difference for her at work and just in general, just feeling more alert and more focused. And it's quite amazing. So get 30% off your first order plus free shipping today at microdose.com, promo code normal people. That's one word. It's available nationwide. That's microdose.com, promo code normal people for 30% off and free shipping. Microdose.com, promo code normal people. So, yeah, I think, you know, we, we want to come back to this question again and again. We come back to what is the Bible and what do we do with it? And so, we want to just look at this past season through the lens of those questions. Yeah. And one of the first things that sticks out in my mind is uh, something I said, I think, in probably the first season around this idea that all theology has an adjective. There's a perspective. And I think of folks like uh, Will Gaffney that really hit home for me, how valuable different socioeconomic race, class, all these different perspectives or experiences shape how you look at the Bible, and that can be such a value to the community of faith. Yeah, and not just, oh, now I understand you, but it actually, you know, taking into consideration the other or marginal groups will actually affect how you think, which I think is why it's so scary to some people, I guess. But that's that's absolutely true. You, you, you don't look at the Bible exactly. Even if you don't agree with everything somebody says, you don't look at the Bible again the same way. And that's a huge thing, and I think a very, very positive thing for the church in general to sort of embrace. Yeah. Were there other podcast guests that we had that did that for you that helped you see the Bible from a different angle, a different lens? Well, I think language is big, and Jonathan Merritt was on about, you know, the use of of sacred words and making words sacred again and and using just different language that people can reconnect with the Christian faith rather than the old words that have lost their meaning. And that struck me too because that is basically the history of the Bible really is is already functioning in that world where when you translate from one language to another, even before the time of Jesus, or if when times change and cultures change and you need to – update is not the best way to put it, but you need to contextualize the language of the Bible so it means something to others. That's just the way it's always been done. And, you know, I, I there's, a, there's, a, Jared, there's a Bible translation out there, I just won't name it, but in talking about Romans chapter 3 and how Paul is talking about language of like atonement, and this translation boasts about how they're using – they're not caving into culture, they're using good words, good biblical words like propitiation. And 
I remember thinking that's not a biblical word. That's that's an English word, actually, and it's already an interpretation of what's going on there. So you know, there's all theology has an adjective. All translations and all words have contexts, and there's actually nothing more faithful to the biblical tradition than a willingness to re-examine the language that you use. And and Jonathan's book was all about that. And I think it was just a fantastic corrective to a lot of things that ail us. Well, and it's it's thinking that it, it's showing how to crystallize a particular language. Well, it's it's really foolish, right? So we do this in English and we think we're somehow like the King James only people who somehow are ordaining an English version without realizing that that's already an interpretation. It's already a translation and we have more and more updating to go. So I feel like anytime we crystallize the language around the Bible, we're just asking for it to die. Yeah, we're leaving it in the past, absolutely. Right. And, and if there's a way to if we, there's a way to bring the Bible to the present without updating the language, like let me know. I'd love yeah. to know how you do that. <laughs> that would feel better. But I don't know how you get. We're human. We use language, and the language you use now. I mean, try to try to read a Bible that was in English in the 1300s and see if you can make sense of of most of it. Yeah, I mean that's true. But people will say, yeah, but the original. Like New Testament's written in Greek. Yeah, okay. As far as we know, and we don't have the originals, but leaving that aside for the moment, that Greek language is still, you know, if the New Testament writers were, were writing in Greek, but if Jesus was, for example, speaking Aramaic, you know, how close are we? And is there a difference between Aramaic and Greek? And, and not only that, but is there a difference between first century Judea and let's say – seventh century Judah? And the answer to that is yes, there are large differences between that. And so, you know, you have to update. And again, update is sort of an anathema term for many people. And I I get that, you know, like you don't want the gospel to sort of rise and fall on the whims of culture, all that kind of stuff. But I just think it's this beautiful thing about the Christian faith that built into it is is the inescapableness of incarnational thinking, because it's never an abstract that's up there and out there someplace. It's never a thing in the past that you have to go back and sort of reiterate the past. We're always challenged to bring the past and our present into some sort of conversation. And the only way really to do that is to change language. Well, I'm going to ask you this, and I expect you to give a great answer for it. How then do we avoid this? Anything goes, right? Because what I hear is it's all fine and good. Like, I think I can, we can get people to say, yeah, in the Bible itself, we see this updating. But then there's always the argument like, well, okay, but they were being guided by the Spirit of God. And they, since it's so far in the past, we can sort of have this mystical idea that somehow back then they could update it because God was guiding that process. But today, if we did that, we would just like fall off the rails because I think there was maybe more of a mechanistic understanding of how the Spirit of God worked mm-hmm. back then. So, we can't imitate what they were doing because we don't have this zapped Spirit of God that's yeah. sort of guiding that process. So, well, today, how do, we, how do we not fall off the rails or anything goes or just go on the whims of culture? Well, for, I would question the entire premise of the way you phrase the question. And, 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 I, and I know there's a common way of thinking about Classic it. Classic deflection. No, because, you know— if you – I mean, this is a big thing. This is not like a podcast or two into itself. But if you look at how the language changed within the Old Testament or from the Old Testament Hebrew period to the Greek period, 
you don't always get the impression these people were guided by the Spirit of God. Like, what the heck are they doing with this text? This this is no way. This how do they get this? You know, and it's it's this beautiful humanity of Scripture that I think that fact alone is enough of an encouragement for us to think. You know, we in a sense we're doing the same thing. We're trying to let me say adapt the tradition for the current moment. And like, when have you gone too far? I think that's a great question. I just don't think we can curtail that theological question or dismiss it quickly because it might be difficult and we're not exactly sure where it's going to wind up. And, it, and I, I think it's, it's, I don't know too many people are saying, hey, let's just destroy the tradition with new language. The, the tension is always I love this tradition. I want to stay connected to it, but some things just don't make sense. You know, one example, I mean, this is anecdotal. I've never experienced this, but the old story about the missionary who goes someplace to some country that's not America, and they talk about the Lamb of God, and they don't know what a lamb is. (laughs) So, I mean, that's that's maybe a little, you know, not not the best example, but it's still, I think it's still a, a, a... illustrative example that they have to like replace with a goat or something because they just don't talk that way. And and the thing is, well, that, what's the big deal? Well, lamb theology is not a tiny thing in the New Testament. It's there. and But do you want the people to understand it or not? And that's the theory behind certain English translations. Like, you know, the NIV is a very dynamic equivalent, they sort of call it. It's like it's trying to stick with words, but also trying to be dynamic in how you express that in ways that people will understand, which is a a translation philosophy that I very much agree with. And a, a wooden translation, like the New American Standard Version, is not more biblical because it's trying to be much more mechanical with words if those words are not helpful to people. Right. Right. You know, mm-hmm. and that's what I just think, you know, this is, so talk about perspectives. You know, th- I mean, just the whole language we use to talk about God and the whole biblical language we use and how we have to rethink what it means in our culture. You know, it's Christianese, right, Jared? Like, we, there's, it's all over the place and it means nothing to people. Like righteousness, redemption, you know, even salvation. You know, we, we, we take these things for granted. And what Jonathan was doing is like, okay, how do we talk about these things today that, you know, uses different language for the, for the real purpose of reclaiming the tradition, not dismissing it? And that's risky. That's the, theology is a risky creative endeavor. That's just it. Well, th- it's funny that you use that because I was about to just say it, there's always this tension between discovery and creation. Mm-hmm. Are, we, are we creating it or are we discovering it? And I think it's always this little bit of both. Like, my tradition growing up, everything was about discovery. It's all there. It's almost like you go on this hunt for dinosaur bones. But since we don't believe in dinosaurs, we have to go on this other kind of hunt, right? And and really, we're just discovering what's in the Bible. The challenge with that is we don't live back then. And so, we have to always be creating as well. And it's, it's sort of, I almost think of it like a recipe. Like, as a Christian, how much of my recipe, what's the ratio of discovery to creation? What's the, the ratio of preservation of old traditions and innovation into the future? And that's a wisdom question for me. That, that's a wisdom question. We have to be wise about that. It, it, it's not always, it's not black and white. We can't say, well, here's the recipe for all time, 70% innovation, 30% preservation. It, it depends. It definitely is a wisdom question. And I think what the, a reason why people might feel uncomfortable with the whole innovative side of things, not the discovery side, is 
we just sort of think like if we if we leave the language and the way it was done in the past, we're sort of leaving God behind and we're sort of charting our own course, which is interesting, but I don't think that's persuasive, at least not to me. What if what if God is out in front of us? And what if we sort of see that kind of thinking already in the Bible? Like God is out in front of the people where ways of thinking that are that are in the biblical tradition are rethought and massaged and in some cases pretty radically rethought because times and circumstances change. And that's that's much more than simply saying, well, you're letting culture or time dictate what God says. Well, no, but just the way language is set up and maybe maybe what if God is actually a part of that process somehow and it's okay just to try your best and to explain this scripture and this tradition as best as you can when and where you live. What if God is bigger than the Bible and is also in culture? And what if, frankly, culture gets it right a lot of times? Mm -hmm. Like I think of the history of we went as Christians. I don't think you can debate the fact that we kind of went kicking and screaming with slavery. We, we went kicking and screaming with women, equality of women. We went kicking and screaming with LGBTQ. And it's like we don't, we don't really ever learn that maybe God's ahead of the curve. Maybe that God's bigger than just what's in the church and sort of this preservationist thinking that maybe God is innovative and God is creating new ways of being in the world. And maybe God's little joke is that, okay, you, you, want, a, you want a Bible? Okay, I'll give you a Bible. I'll make it so old. That there's no way you can just follow this. I'll make it so diverse. I will make it so unlike anything you really want just to drive home the point that you cannot absolve yourself of this responsibility to, I think, do theology. That's really what it comes down to. Right. Well, and I think this is tied into, you know, another point that we were talking about earlier on how we think about the Bible and how we use the Bible as a weapon. Right. So we had a number of episodes where we wouldn't maybe have said it that strongly, but I think there were a number of episodes with how we can weaponize the text and how whenever I think of the connection, because I think of people who are all about preservation can tend to kind of lash out in ways, maybe even unconsciously or in unintentionally mm-hmm. hurtful ways when you start to mess with the thing that keeps me feeling safe and secure, the thing that's unchanging and keeps the status quo. To protect. And so you use the old language as non-negotiable at every point. And sometimes people's experiences push them in different directions. Well, you shouldn't let your experience affect how you think about God. I don't know. I I just, again, I see that throughout the Bible where people's experiences affect how they, exactly how they think about God. You know, does God like Assyrians or hate them? Well, it's Jonah or Nahum, take your pick. You know, um, does God punish the sins or bless people in a multi-generational way? Well, Ten Commandments, yes. Ezekiel, no. So, you know, it's not like the Bible is full of contradictions. They're really showing that the, the, the necessary openness, I think, that the people of God have to have for what's happening in their moment and not always reading it through the lens of past moments. And when you do, like you said, Jared, the tone can become very belligerent with people. And it's not that you can't debate stuff. Right, we can right. debate things all the time, and that's fine, and and strongly disagree. But it it slides over sometimes too quickly, almost immediately to demonizing other people and slandering them, or 
really just making their lives miserable. We had a couple guests on like that. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S.? They have everything you could possibly want, like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit for your climate and space. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online, and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with that, their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee is amazing. They offer free plant consultation forever. We got our bushes in, and you can tell I don't know what I'm talking about because I just call them bushes. But we got them in last night. And Fast Growing Trees knows what they're called. Exactly. That's the whole point. It comes with this placard that tells you exactly what to do like you were in fifth grade, which is the exact instruction <laughs> level that I needed. And it was very easy to follow. We loved the process. This spring, they have their best deals online up to half off on select plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com, code NORMALPEOPLE. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. A calling is a powerful thing. It's a very strong belief that there is something bigger for you. It's about who you are and where you're going in life. You may be in college, you may be halfway through a career, but you want something different. There's a place for you at Union Presbyterian Seminary, where students are prepared for a call to ministry. At Union, you will find a diverse community. You'll find students from different denominations and professors who will listen to you and challenge you. You'll find people who help you find your own path. You'll find a school where financial realities matter. Union offers generous financial aid, and it meets you where you are with three different platforms for learning, residential, online, and hybrid. You'll find a world-class faculty who will invest in you, a community long after you graduate that supports you and equips you for service and for leadership. Safwat Marzuk, who has been on the podcast here on The Bible for All People, is a faculty at Union Presbyterian Seminary and is slated to write one of our upcoming commentaries. It's no secret, if you're a listener to the podcast, how much Pete and I have relied on our seminary education and how much that has shaped our view of the world and all of our work here at The Bible for Normal People. It's your call. Respond with Union Presbyterian Seminary. To learn more, go to upsem.edu or email admissions at upsem.edu. Well, and yeah, the question of what do we, what are we making judgments based on? And I, I keep going back to when we had Jen. So I think Jen was what we launched. We call season her Jen. Two. Her real name is Jen Hatmaker. Jen Hatmaker. Uh, when we launched season two, I think we got a lot of push. I mean, I remember getting a lot of pushback on her statement that a part of her decision in changing her mind about about the Bible and on some crucial issues was the fruit of the people that she saw holding yeah. different issues. And th I was just surprised by the amount of pushback that's like, well, the fruit isn't, that's not a good argument. And I was, I was just really surprised by that. So it makes me think of what are we judging, what are we judging these things by? And I think the fruit of, you know, you mentioned kind of going belligerent and going to demonizing. I think that is important when we're talking about if, if the certain way of looking at the Bible and interpreting it consistently leads to a, a certain belligerence, I think that is important. Yeah, and you know, we were. Uh, I mean, I've heard that uh, this a lot, and we were part of a tradition at one point in our lives where I, I can't tell you how many times I've heard that theology sort of exists on its own, and right interpretation exists on its own. 
And if you're sort of a real jerk about it, that's irrelevant. That, that's a, we will tolerate that for the, in the interest of theological truth. But, you know, Jen's saying, you know, if it produces bad fruit, I think Jesus says something very similar to that in the Sermon on the Mount, that you can actually tell the value of a teacher by the fruit it produces. And the fruit that it produces has nothing to do with passing an ordination exam or, or doing well in a theology exam. It has to do with what kind of a human you are. Well, and it actually goes deeper to that idea we've talked about several times, which is we've privileged our minds. We privilege a belief set or ideas that we assent to rather than our behavior. And yeah, it's, it, so that's what I understand by that is, well, we can't judge things by the fruit we have to judge it by something more objective, and that means something like a faith statement that I can sign off on. And I, I think that's a mistake. Where, where does that come from? Like where – that wasn't always the case in the history of the church, I think. Yeah. I'm not – I mean, do we get – I wonder if we get just twinges of that in Augustine. Hmm. I'm not sure. That was a long time ago. That was a long time yeah. ago. But definitely in the modern period. But I think, you know, definitely – yeah, definitely the modern period because I think for those – of our brothers and sisters who might be prone towards reactive belligerence, I don't think they're getting it from Augustine. I think they're getting it from a more immediate setting. And like we're just in a, in a, in a state of watching your borders really carefully, you know. And, and I have my own pop analysis of that, which may be one-tenth true. But I think a lot does go back to the 19th century and Darwin and biblical archaeology, which sort of – Made the Bible less special in a way, you know? But why are the borders, even that though, like, even if you were, even if we were about borders, why are the borders we're drawing about certain beliefs and not behaviors? Like, why are we not like, yeah, we're all about boundaries and ours is not committing adultery. That's like the thing that we hang our hat on. You don't see a lot of behavior-based boundary making. It is still this belief set yeah, making. the intellectual system, right. I guess. Yeah. Do well, again, more pop analysis, which Reformation historians will probably want to beat me senseless, but not in a belligerent way, in a kind way. But, you know, th there are th elements in the Protestant Reformation that coincides with the rise of science and analysis. And, you know, to know something is to analyze it. And you can do that with the biblical text as you can with the physical world. And one thing that Martin Luther did, which is doesn't always get the press that it deserves, is he sort of brought the German language together where people could actually start reading the Bible because he translated into German and not just Latin for people because he wanted people to read their Bible. And many people connect with that things like the rise of the German universities and the study of the Bible, which then becomes an object of analysis and science. And that has a hold on, you know, European and then American thinking. And then there's a reaction to that, which we typically call fundamentalism of the 19th century and early 20th century, which is fueled by the same notion of analysis and getting the right answer from this text. In other words, it's entirely an intellectual battle. Hey, normal people, Pete here. Just a quick break. First, if you like what we're doing, please rate us on iTunes. I could back that up with plenty of Bible verses, but there's just no time. Also, consider supporting our work at Patreon for as little as $1 a month, cheaper than the price of a very bad cup of coffee. You'll have access to videos, early announcements, book clubs, an active Slack group of kindred spirits, and more. And that's patreon.com forward slash the Bible for normal people. 
Finally, a huge thanks to our producers group at Patreon. They get on calls with us and give us great feedback. If you like what we're doing, thank them. If not, just blame Jared. So thank you to Logan Jansen, Matthew Tringali, Christopher Lake, Josh Hamilton, Kevin Marshall, Robert Cochran, Tyler Tankersley, Robert Auth, Austin Hill, and Patrick Antos. We couldn't do what we do without you. Now back to the podcast. And even, you know, even the bad guys, the quote liberals, who were like amazing, wonderful human beings, that was immediately discounted. And on the other side, the orthodox people, in terms of their beliefs, their behaviors were discounted. Like, we don't care how nasty they are. We know they're right. They're on our side. And I've experienced, as you have too, Jared, many, many times, belligerence is ignored in the interest of an intellectual system. And, you know, the more I think about that, the more absurd it is to me. It just, that, that just doesn't sound Jesus-y to me. I'm sorry. So, we, you know, we use the Bible against others. And, and you know, who hasn't done that on some level? But, you know, a couple of guests, Trey Pearson and, and, and Jen Hatmaker especially, were very articulate about some of those things. And Brian McLaren, too, you know, he the, about weaponizing the Bible, as only Brian can say that, you know, it's just, it, it, it's true. You know, we, we and and that's not good orthodox faithful theology. That's that's very disruptive and, and well, divisive. I think you can extrapolate from that also. It's tied to how we see God. Is God there to confirm everything we already believe and to protect, or is God there to critique? what we believe, to push us out of our comfort zone, to challenge us. And so, I, one of the things I appreciate about the the prophetic tradition and the prophets is it sets up a God who isn't there just to protect our boundaries, but to challenge that and to say, hey, you've co-opted me in this process and now are using the temple rituals, or you're using the priestly class that I that we've set up here, or, or you're the using monarchy. the monarchy to now oppress people, and that's not okay. And I always go back to Joshua. I love, in, I think it's Joshua 5, where I think it's Joshua who comes up and you know, got done with his battle, and there's this random person there, the, the angel of the Lord, says, which side are you on? And the angel says, neither. <laughs> and I love that. It's like, neither. I think we need a neither theology mm. where... God's not on my side or your side There's because – That's right. Uh, it, it, you're already assuming a divide and us versus them. And I think this God is the one who says neither. And that's an unsettling thing. Well, what people will point out though, and I think this is something to consider though, is that there is insider, outsider language in the Bible. You, you find it. You I just skip those it. parts. You skip those parts. But I, I, first of all, I think it's okay to skip those parts. But even so, that, that suggests us again this diversity in the Bible. And it's not like you have to get to the New Testament for Jesus to fix it. You have that discussion already happening in the Old Testament. And that's something for us to just keep in mind when we get sort of like – in other words, to be theologically belligerent, you also have to be very selective in your use of Scripture. And is there room for God to act in ways that are so outside of our frame of reference, we just want to call it heterodoxy or heresy? And again, I don't want to say this is an easy equation, but that's sort of what they said about Jesus and Paul. Right. I mean, it's it's hard to escape some of the tectonic shifts in thinking that you see in the New Testament. It's not against the Old Testament. These guys were Jews. But they still said things that rightly got people riled up. 
and that were not consistent with biblical teaching. You know, circumcision, yeah, if you want to. You know, dietary restrictions, yeah, not really. <laughs> you know, and then a dying and rising Messiah makes no sense in Judaism. So it's like, it's almost like the whole Christian tradition is founded on innovation, which hack people off, right? But and, it's very hard to see it as innovation when you have 2,000 years of preservation from where we're sitting. Right. right. And that can be a challenge yeah. to understand that. And also, you know, if you have this notion, like, you, like you're saying, that the church has pretty much existed the way I understand it now for 2,000 years, and I represent pretty much historic Christian orthodoxy in how I think. And that may be true in some things, but... You know, students of church history will be very quick to point out that there's been tremendous diversity in the church. That doesn't mean that there are no boundaries whatsoever, but you might be surprised where some of those boundaries are, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, and, and the atonement, I don't know. This, <laughs> I got like six theories running around inside my head. It's probably all those. But, you know, it's things like that. It's the, the, the flexibility of the tradition. And so when people of, of good faith come along and they say – it may be time for us to rethink X. The first response to that should not be, you're wrong, you're not, quote, biblical. It might be, well, let's see. You may have a point to make. We might have to listen. We're not going to listen just because you say so, but maybe this is a time for us to really talk about things and, and, and weigh arguments and, and really look into issues and, and how they're affecting people. Maybe, maybe that's a better way of doing theology and not weaponizing the Bible. And I would hope for everyone that we would look at how we, how we all weaponize I think of weaponized maybe as too strong, but I think of how we defend our insecurities with the Bible. Because by weaponizing the Bible. By weaponizing the Bible. <laughs> but, I, but weaponizing is this very offensive yeah, thing. And is, I think if yeah. we took stock of our own insecurities mm -hmm. and how we use the Bible to sort of fill those, I think it might help us to be – because I just think there's two different kinds of people for me who disagree with me theologically. There are those who you can tell are genuinely humble in spirit. They don't – they don't have a lot of insecurities. They just are. They just disagree. And then there are those who are very reactionary and emotionally reactive. And I think there's something going on there. I wish we could be more introspective and see what are those kind of holes in our soul that we're very afraid mm. of getting exposed. And I, I think that's on all sides of the theological right. spectrum, left and right. And that's, for me, where this Jen's discussion of fruit comes in is I think if we could look at those behaviors and then look back and say, well, what's going on inside our hearts mm -hmm. that's causing that? It's not just an intellectual exercise of good theology, bad theology. If you believe in a vengeful, angry, wrathful God, you will behave vengefully and angry. And I think there's, there's something to that. But there's also – I think it's more complicated than that. Yeah. Well, I mean there's two groups that you mentioned. I think the first group contributes to theological engagement. I disagree. Here's why I don't hate you, but I do disagree. Right. And the other is more – and, and I, I mean this sincerely that that sounds more like therapy in, 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 the, in the best sense of the word, like a real need to be introspective. Like what makes me tick? Like why – and this is something, you know, I, I learned years ago and I by no means have mastered it, but I, I think about this a lot. When I'm quickly triggered and jump to anger real fast, I've learned to say, 
what problem do you have? Like what, what is making, it's not that person that's making me angry. There's something going on inside of me. And that's a much harder question to ask. And if we did that, if I did that, I think there'd be a lot less reactive belligerence. You can still have disagreement and strong debate, which is part of the Christian tradition too. Yeah, which would actually strengthen the diversity. If we could come to the table and disagree in these emotionally healthy, maybe is a good way of saying that. Yeah. If we could disagree in emotionally healthy ways, I think we couldn't help but grow stronger in our faith and our different perspective. It kind of ties into, I'm not going to listen to other people's perspectives if I'm not in a place where I can hear it, mm-hmm. where I can hear challenges to the way I've always thought. Right. Although some challenges are not helpful challenges. They're, they're baiting challenges, you know, but a genuine challenge, I think it's, it's, it's an art to know the difference between the two. But, you know, on Facebook or Twitter or whatever, sometimes the challenges are just... Well, they're trying to get you. It's the gotcha. It's a gotcha moment, Mm -hmm. you know. And I want to be careful not to do that myself, but you're you're beyond hope, Jared. You do it all the time on Twitter. It's horrible. Anyway. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes. So doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. So, okay, listen, let, let's, there's another thing too that, you know, here at the Bible for normal people, one reason we started the podcast was to allow really smart people who have studied stuff for a long time, sort of bring that to people who maybe don't go to seminary or didn't go to seminary or anything like that. But it's like really interesting and it can actually very positively affect how you look at your faith, how you look at God, stuff like that. So, you know, stuff like, I, I mean, archaeology, for example, we had Cynthia, Cynthia Schaefer-Elliot on uh, early, in the, or early in, the, um, in the season. And just, it just really struck me how looking at the material culture, not texts, but material culture that archaeologists look at, you can see the importance of women in everyday life in Israel that you will not pick up on from reading texts that it's not that it's just that they were written by men. I think that's that's not the strongest critique. It's that they were written for a particular political and religious. I don't know what's the, what's the word I'm looking for. Not, I don't want to say agenda, but it's more like th- there's a, a a structure they're trying to build that's theopolitical, and you know, men were pretty much in power, right? I mean, this is the ancient world, but I don't think. I'm not sure if Israelite men live, you know, farming would say, don't talk to me, woman, you're a female, and God says you're less of value to me. It's like, yeah, honey, I just, can you do all the, I I need, we won't survive without each other, right? And that's, that's the kind of thing that she brought out, and I thought that was just really, really valuable how there can be a conversation even between the material culture and the textual witness 
which is not designed to tell you like what was everyday life like? What was it, what was your average Israelite doing, you know, in the 7th century? BCE and it you know might not be reading Deuteronomy or something. Well, I, I, yeah, I appreciated. We had a number. I think of Mark Smith was yeah. another one that painted this picture. And one of the pictures I I like is you know growing up I had a sense that the ancient world was very different than the world today in terms of how people believed. Like somehow they were all amazing believers in God. They were all really they all had access to God in these ways. And then to hear like Cynthia Schaefer Elliott or Mark Smith talk about well there's there's kind of the the adopted religion. There's like the elite religion or the the one that gets published. The official religion. The official, yeah, the official yeah. religion. And then there's what actually was happening. So it's like 300 years from now, people only had access to sermons from prominent pastors and sort of tried to construct what it was like to be an average Christian in America. It's like, well, they're going to get a very skewed picture of that. So I appreciate it. It, it actually relieves me of the pressure to kind of be like that. It's yeah. like, well, there's this, the average person wouldn't have been like that. They would have had, like, with Cynthia Schaefer Elliott, like, they probably would have had many gods, little statues. You know, of course, if you can't have kids, what does it hurt to pray to the fertility goddess? Right. And it, it just humanized the, the scene for me. It's, for me, it's analogous to how we think of Christmas. You know, if, if you had archaeologists digging up, let's say, official church documents about Christmas time, three, four thousand years from now. And there'd be prayers and there'd be Mary and there'd be Jesus and there would be all sorts of things, maybe wise men, whatever. And and this is what we talk about. This is part of our pageants or whatever. And if that's all they knew, that's fine. But they dig a little bit further and there's this thing called Black Friday that starts the, the, you know, and they're going shopping right away. (laughs) And who the heck is Santa Claus and Frosty and, and Rudolph? It's like, you know, the popular religion, so to speak, is not the official religion. And and even, you know, so, well, those people aren't really religious. I don't know. I know a lot of people who are actually Christians who, like, love Rudolph, you know, or love Frosty. Or, you know, Christmas trees with blinking lights on them or things like that. It's just the official religion and the down-to-earth religion is different. And, you know, the fertility goddesses, like you mentioned, there's a reason why thousands of clay figurines, which probably represent the fertility goddess Asherah, a Canaanite religion, were found in 7th century Judah. Not like 1500 BC Judah, but 7th century Judah. And it's like, well, that's why the prophets were complaining all the time because these were sinners. And yeah, I, I guess maybe that's why they were denouncing them, but I can't imagine for these people to say, let's rebel against Yahweh. It's just, this is how you do religion in the ancient world. You have little figurines and, you know, Yahweh is maybe our supreme God, but the others can't hurt. You know, they might help a little bit because, you know, my neighbor's got great crops and they sacrificed to Asherah. You know, have no other gods before me. Okay, how about next to you <laughs> or like walking two steps behind you? Can we just do this? And, and what you know, what would we do in that ancient world? Would we be like, well, we're going to get the Bible right? Now, we'd be right in there with the farmers. and the. Well, people. I mean, I think if you – not to abstract too much, but it's sort of like the – I think I've heard this before. Like, well, yeah, we trust we trust God, but hey, the, the 401k can't hurt either, right? <laughs> So it's like, yeah, trust God with your future. And so we have that, again, it's sort of that official religion. We have the the things that we talk about, but then very practically, we have these other syncretistic ways of living in the world that are just practically, for them, that was a practical thing. If you want fertility, you want good crops, 
then yeah, what does it hurt to have this backup practice? <laughs> and I think we have those. They're just more abstract within sort of a capitalistic society. There's the ideal, but then there's the actual concrete right. world that we live in. And the thing for me with these podcasts and just the, I guess it's probably the older I get too, is there's something really comforting about not trying to be that ideal version and be having a view of God that says, hey, God's, it's okay. Mm-hmm. It's okay. Yeah. Like we're doing the best we can. There's always going to be the Asherah. There's always going to be the 401k. There's always going to be something in our mm-hmm. culture that yeah. is there. And that's that's hard to hear if the Bible is this, let's say, bit of revelation that gives you the pure religion, which it sort of does, but it has to do with how you treat widows and orphans and how you're just other people. There's, that is sort of the pure religion to love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, strength, and your neighbor as yourself. I mean, that's, that is, I, I do think that is a distillation of biblical teaching. It's Old New Testament. Jesus harps on it, right? But if, if you think of it as that Everything there is equally ultimate. Everything in there, there's no theological discernment needed. You just do all that it says, unless it's really crazy, like stoning your rebellious teenager in Deuteronomy. But some people find a way around that. But you know, it's it's the official religion, so to speak. It's like it's so messy in the Bible. It's again, it's almost like we're. It's God's way of saying you might have to think through some of this stuff yourself, and and what you do now concretely on earth right here at this moment, it may not look exactly like that official religion, but there you have it. Well, it makes me think of the uh, the French philosopher Jacques Derrida because he talks about he talks about justice and he distinguishes between kind of justice with the big J and justice with the little J. And justice with the big J, we're just – as humans, we're always going to fall short. Like we've never seen a perfect instance of justice. But that shouldn't keep us from pursuing – small J justice all the time. We're always at the horizon of the big J. We're always right there, but we just are never going to get there. And I think of that too, is thinking of the Bible and and these things as love of God, love of neighbor are always that thing we're going to pursue. And we're always going to fall a little short, but that shouldn't keep us from pursuing that in new ways and creative ways in culturally contextual ways. And in some ways, I was thinking about it as you said that the Bible really is us getting to the point where we realize that that is what it all is about and then figuring out contextually how we do that in every generation. Yeah. I mean, I think the Bible deconstructs those bad uses of the Bible that don't take the context into account well enough, which I think is just a wonderful – it takes the pressure off. Like it's not about memorizing – a legal tradition. I mean, Jews have always known better than that anyway, you know, because the legal tradition is so, it is contradictory, it is diverse in the Bible. So you, you always, always have to think about it. And, you know, that concrete winds up not being simply a mimicking or repetition of what's written on the page. You always have to think about it. And again, the Bible itself bears witness to that. So, well, yeah, I guess, Jared, there are so many angles to this we could touch on. There's just so much that happened in the second season, but I think we probably have to, like, not repeat the entire second season today. I agree. Well, and we also might want to just do a third season to keep the conversation going. Yeah, I think so. Okay, if you want. Yeah, but we should take a little break. I thought about it. I hadn't even thought about it. Okay, yeah, let's it's, do the third season, whatever. This is all for show. We've actually already recorded yeah. several episodes of season three, it's if you're December, listening to this. Yeah. 
Yeah. But we're excited to keep the conversation going. Absolutely, yeah. We haven't answered it yet. What is the Bible? What do we do with it? I don't think we've answered it. But we're talking about it. And to quote Miley Cyrus, I think it's The Climb. That's a Miley Cyrus? I I wouldn't know that. Yeah. Okay. I only know that because. Oh, yeah. Here comes the justification. Not too long ago. Uh And one of our dogs is named Miley. Oh, that's true. Yeah, that's from my daughter. Is it from Miley Cyrus? Yes. My daughter was a big fan when she was young, and then she left for college. And we're stuck with this idiot dog named Miley, who I just look at and want to kick every day. But I don't, because Miley's a little cutie. My dog Miley. Yeah, you are a big softie towards your animals. You're like putting up a big front. I know. Yeah. I have, I have good animals. All right. All right, folks. Well, listen, again, thanks for season two. See you in season three. It's coming up. It's coming up. Yeah. yeah. Well, and if you get bored between now and the next season, feel free to go back, listen to a lot of these episodes. And if you haven't already, we would really appreciate your support. So head to patreon.com front slash the Bible for normal people. And for as little as a dollar a month, you can keep this show going. Help us launch season three. Help us with a lot of other projects. We we are really passionate about bringing biblical scholarship to everyday people. And so far, this podcast is one way. We have lots of other ideas. We'd love to get off the ground in the future. So while you're sitting around with your days off, drinking your, what do you drink over Christmas? Do you drink eggnog? That's gross. But as you're drinking that, go head to patreon.com. Friends slash the Bible for normal people. Help us out. Absolutely. Thanks, people. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you. With professional-grade industrial supplies, count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.